0: Thank you Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. What else but the election for today's show? But with things still somewhat up in the air, we'll focus on some longer-term issues this deeply unsatisfying contest brought out. To help us in this effort, we'll be joined by the historian and journalist Vijay Prashad and the political scientist Jody Dean. Trump may be on the way out. We still don't know for sure in this marvelous democracy we have. But he's transformed our political landscape in potentially long-lasting ways. Contrary to early prognostications that he would tear it apart, the Republican Party is now solidly his. Mainstream hopes that he would suffer a crushing defeat that would lead the GOP on an extended rethink have proven deeply wrong. The party did far better than anyone expected in congressional as well as state and local races, that blue tsunami that many pundits forecast just never happened. Trump has energized a large fraction of the population, including very significantly the police, in scary ways. Images of cops beating and pepper-spraying peaceful protesters have become standard fare. The folks in blue seem to take any demonstration more personally than they did in the past, and Trump is a major reason for that. Despite his ignorance and indifference to detail, Trump did accomplish a lot of his miserable policy agenda. Cutting taxes, deregulating everything, despoiling the environment, blocking immigration and demonizing migrants, moving the federal judiciary solidly and durably to the right. Against that, the corporate Democrats mounted a very weak effort with little positive content. Their main appeal was, and still is, that they're just not Trump, which really isn't much of a message. It's hard to have a strong positive message when your Wall Street paymasters are keeping you on a short leash. On to the guests. Vijay Prashad taught at Trinity College for over 20 years, from 1996 to 2017, but he left the Academy to direct Tricontinental, a people's think tank named in honor of a 1966 conference held in Cuba that gathered revolutionaries from Asia, Africa, and Latin America. You can find out more at their website, thetricontinental.org. VJ is the author of something like 20 books, including Washington Bullets, Red Star Over the Third World, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. VJ Prashad. Before we get into deep specifics, uh, VJ, uh, just what are your general impressions of what happened yesterday? We're, we're recording this. It looks like Biden's going to squeak in, um, but you know, the Democrats generally did rather below expectations, as I say, on Wall Street. So what do you make of it all?
1: Well, you know, le- let's be quite frank. Whatever you think of the policies of Donald Trump and whatever you think of the history of or the uh, record of Joe Biden, just in terms of human material, uh, Trump, when he won the election in 2016, was, you might give him a benefit of doubt. He, he's never been in office before. He was, in terms of human material, quite a ghastly person. And it was a surprise and a shock not only to sensitive people in the United States, around the world and so on, but it was just a shock that he won in 2016. Let's just put it like that, you know, uh, not for his policies, what he promised or anything, but just that he was just a not a nice person. It's just a repulsive creature, really. Right. And, and who's who made the rules that say that only nice people, you know, can do well in life? You and I are old enough to know that's a ridiculous thing that you learned as a little child and you know, quickly found out it's not true. The playground bully was the one who seemed to get on fine uh, in the playground. And, you know, being the nice kid didn't help you much. But nonetheless, you know, we learned to value being a nice person, a sensitive person, a person that, you know, wasn't mean to other people. He was a mean guy and he won that election. Well, four years later, knowing full well what he has done, which in many ways is not to govern a country. And and I understand the United States president doesn't really do a lot of governing anyway. But he had the propensity just to sort of stroll through his tenure, four years. At the same time, he pushed filling the judicial seats. Uh, He pushed a kind of flagrant disregard for science. He attacked journalists. He demonstrated what it's like to have a Trump White House. And despite that, despite plus 200,000 people dead and so on, he comes so close to being reelected. You know, I mean, he wins more votes in 2020 than he won in 2016, just in terms of the number of people who voted for him. That to me is pretty astounding, you know, and, and I'm not saying it from the standpoint, Doug, of oh my god, I'm terrified for America or I'm heartbroken or, you know, I mean, I know this country has never come to terms with the question of race. There really wasn't a conclusion to the civil war from 1861 to 1865, which is why, you know, just this year and the previous year, people were bringing down statues of Confederate generals. I mean, which war, Doug, in which country, which war, Did the people who are supposedly defeated in the war erect statues of their generals all across the landscape and not privately, you know, in the privacy of their homes, but out in the public square? I, I can't think of any other example. That civil war didn't end in 1865. It continues till today. It was wrong what the Republicans said, you know, earlier when they said there's a cultural war. There's no cultural war. It's the civil war. It's continuing. It's not ended yet. These protests around racism, that's the civil war i get that this is there's a seam of the country that's disposed to the kinds of things trump says and his policies and so on but just in terms of being a person of such bad basic character and then allowing 200,000 plus people to die. Good God, man, what's wrong with the electorate? Yeah, well, that is the,
0: that is the million dollar question. Um, what is wrong with the electorate? I mean, you went into something with the civil war and, and racial issues, which, which uh, the United States has never even begun to confront. But how do you read his appeal to so much of the population? And this time, He got, what, a third of the Latino vote, 10, 15 percent of black men. He's going beyond the base of what people think of as his base of, you know, enraged white dudes.
1: Well, look, what I'm going to say should not be interpreted as saying that I actually agree with what he's saying, you know, because I know that this is a sensitive issue. And there are lots of people who jump on you immediately if you sound sympathetic to what Trump is saying or doing. It was always going to be a close race. It's a highly divided country. In the last, I don't know, five or six election cycles, the person who won the majority of the votes didn't win uh, the presidency. You know, th- that's it's become a pattern now, and it has to do with the Electoral College, and we don't need to get into that. Because the real issue is, what's the appeal even to 68, 69 million people who vote for him? I mean, it's it's a mass base. It's not just the plutocracy, the kind of Koch brothers crowd that hides their Yale jackets and, you know, pretends to be a man. of It's not just them that are voting. It's actually people among the mass that are coming out in large numbers and voting for him. But why are they doing so? Well, I mean, in a sense, it's not Trump that has, you know, uh, come out there and, and sort of done an asset stripping of the United States. You know, I mean, he's contributed to it as a slumlord in New York City and, you know, the erector of these giant, ugly monuments, just hideous pieces of construction. You know, sure, he contributed to it in that life, but in the presidency, he's not the architect of the asset stripping of the United States. That's a four or five decade project of the destruction of the basic livelihood of people in the United States. That's a process that's bipartisan. That was done by the nature of capitalism, which globalized, which took advantage of highly disciplined, skilled and well-fed labor in places like China, who were going to cost less than American workers. That's a long process. It's an objective process that took place. It destroyed a lot of communities. I mean, I remember meeting a fund manager from Goldman Sachs in the 1980s, who was telling me, regaling me with stories of this town in Wisconsin, where they had a choice whether to put money into a declining paper company or to asset strip it, send the machinery overseas, basically lay everybody off and convert that factory into lakeside housing. And he was regaling me and saying, look, we could have actually invested because it was a profitable paper company. We could have made money. There's a big market for the kind of paper it was producing. But that's long term. Who's going to tie up the investment? You know, we're just going to strip everything, make the money and walk away. And that's the kind of thing that happened and people lost their jobs and for almost one, maybe two generations have been in a form of stagnation. And along comes Trump. And let's not say that Democrats don't speak this language because Democrats do in in many pockets of the country and they do win elections, you know, uh, in this cycle at the lower level, many socialist type Democrats did get elected, you know, whether it's in the New York Assembly or it's to Congress and so on. It's not that they don't speak this language, but somehow when the Democrats come to the presidential level, they try to appeal to this mythical centrist voter. You know what, Rahm Emanuel in this cycle quite in decorously called the Biden Republicans, who just didn't show up, there, there are no Biden Republicans. Meanwhile, Trump arrives, this god-awful person arrives and just says these things bluntly, like, you know, you have been, your lives have been destroyed. And people look at him and think, yes, finally somebody's talking about our distress. Now, classic right-wing strongman, you know, your lives have been distressed, these elites are doing it to you, these elites are doing it to you and so are the migrants and so are the minorities. And, you know, you're not allowed to be proud of your heritage. And they pivot so swiftly from the class argument to the culture argument that that's the reason why they get support from the billionaires and so on, because they know that it's not Trump who's going to Make the class argument and then deepen it and say, well, what we need to do is move towards a socialist society. Quite the contrary. He spent this whole re election campaign attacking socialism, attacking communism, but basically the same language. You know, you've been screwed over. I'm going to take care of you. The problem is communist China. The problem is the Wall Street elites. And the problem is migrants and people like that. And this is a potent message, Doug. It's not only in the United States, it's a potent message in the Brexit vote. It's an it's enduringly potent message in Poland. It's the same story. They do come in and talk about these class issues, but before you can blink, they've pivoted to culture. And that's a very smart, but also old fashioned right-wing attitude to building a mass base.
0: I was just thinking about that uh, famous quote from Stuart Hall, that majorities in politics are not discovered, but they're created. Trump has done a pretty good job of that. Even if it's not a majority anymore,
1: it's pretty close to one. It's a remarkable act of political construction. Well, he wrote that in the context of Margaret Thatcher coming in and why Labour was not able to confront Thatcher. Stuart Hall spent a great part of his career trying to understand why Labour was not able to maintain its majority, let's say, and how perhaps by mimicking Thatcherism, it might be able to return. You know, it's interesting, if you read Stuart Hall, there is a prior thing that he doesn't address, because he remains largely at the level of culture in his conversation. He doesn't go below, which is that the reservoirs of the left, of the Labour Party, but actually much more the left, trade unionism and so on, had been deeply eroded. You can't make a majority out of nothing, you know? Uh, wh- what is the What are the resources for the left, for instance, of building a majority? Well, you'll need organizational form, you know, you need trade unionism, you need the building of confidence in people. Trade unions of one kind or the the other are the school of the working class. It's where people learn to understand the complexity of this system, because this god awful capitalist system is not easy to understand on the face of it. Okay, you can say, you know, I get ripped off. I go to work, work so many hours. I come out with a paycheck, but I don't get paid enough. Fine. There's a right wing guy at the factory gate who says, blame it on China. And you say, well, yeah, sure. Blame it on China. Then there's this union fellow who's saying, well, no, it's not really China. It's this capitalist system. It's surplus value. It's a complicated argument. And so their unions played a crucial role, developing working class consciousness, developing confidence, the capacity to organize and so on. And because of globalization, because of the way globalization took place from the 1970s onwards, the destruction of industry, the creation of factory deserts in so many parts of Europe and North America, because. The way that happened, the reservoir of the left was destroyed, and, and so the majority made by the right by Thatcher in Britain in the late 70s, right through the 1980s, and then you know it is actually quite a considerable majority because Trump may not win re election but he's built an enormous base, you know, which is going to have an impact for at least a generation. And this majority that they have built, it's built out of the key classes, you know, lower middle class sections of the dispossessed former working class and and so on, are are part of this. Um, He's built this big majority, but it's, with the wrong argument, you know, as far as the future is concerned. This is a repulsive argument that he's putting forward, but it's attractive. And you can do that because the people are disorganized. A disorganized population that is suffering is much easier to draw into a simplistic kind of narrative that makes sense on the surface of it, but doesn't make sense when you go just beneath the surface. And because the left has this very difficult problem that our narrative is just below the surface of reality, you can't just make the argument from the stump. You have to organize people. They have to come to understand the complexity of the system, you know, how difficult and how protracted our struggle is going to be uh, to transform the world. That just can't be done, you know, by a Bernie standing there and lecturing. You need organization.
0: I'm speaking with Vijay Prashad, historian, journalist, and executive director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. You alluded to this to some degree, but for all his indifference to governing, short attention span, and sloppiness. Trump did manage to accomplish several significant things. Uh, One is um, the tax cuts. Two is the massive amounts of deregulation that he's accomplished. The attacks on what Steve Bannon called the administrative state. I mean, this really transformed the American landscape, literally, uh, and as well as the figure, a political landscape. Uh, but particularly interesting thing is the relationship with China, where there is a real uh, problem within the American bourgeoisie with China, because, you know, it's a rising power. It's, it's a threat to uh, American preeminence, which is a rapidly receding thing. And Trump really um, did uh, increase the divisions between the U.S. and China and amp up the hostilities. What do you see happening to that relationship after Trump's um, interventions?
1: You're quite right. I mean, look, Most of the other things he did, tax cuts, attacking the, well, the administrative state, deregulation, these are basic Republican policies. I mean, which Republican president didn't show up and say, let's cut taxes, which Republican president hasn't, at least since, you know, the phrase drain the swamp was first, unfortunately, uh, used, come in and said uh, and and attack the so-called, you know, administrative state. Well, Trump went further, the deep state, and so on. Uh, these, these are basic Republican policies, even flooding the judiciary with no concern for bipartisanship. Democrats, uh, they sort of tread with you know, very soft toes because they are always worried about being bipartisan, you know, when packing the judiciary. (laughs) Republicans don't care. They just stuff it. I mean, they come in and they ride roughshod. And the Democrats put up no resistance. I mean, look at the Supreme Court. No resistance uh, at all. You know, when Obama was trying to put the jurist in right before he left office, the resistance they put up was incredible. So this is just normal Republican stuff. The China thing is not entirely normal. But it's actually got to do with the conjuncture. We've reached the point now, and it's not a coincidence, Doug, that last year for the first time, uh, two significant things uh, were detected. One is for the first time, Chinese scientists or scientists based in China had more uh, scientific papers, peer-reviewed scientific papers than scientists based domiciled in the United States for the first time. And secondly, there were more Chinese patents at the World Intellectual Property Organization than US. Domicile patents. Now, of course, it's true that the US patents may be higher quality. It's not only about quantity. But it is very significant that both in terms of science, which is scientific papers, and tech, which is patents, you see a trend where, for the first time since records have been kept after World War II, you're seeing somebody other than the United States enter the field. This has become very significant. And you know, you know a lot about this. This has become significant because I think for the first time, tech companies in the US have really, they've totally come to the realization that they are under threat from Chinese tech. Uh, This has to do of course with 5G, not just 5G, broad spectrum telecommunications, what ZTE, what Huawei are producing, Nokia cannot produce. It's not even a question of they can't produce at the price. They just can't produce some of that technology in robotics, hydrogen energy, high-speed rail, green energy, technologically, China has leapfrogged in a way that people in the West haven't really, that is the general public hasn't come to terms with. But the tech companies know about this. And let me ask you to reflect on something. in this, During this entire so-called trade war that Trump has prosecuted, not once did we get the CEO of a Silicon Valley firm come out in public and say, look, let's dial down the tensions with China. And this is despite the fact that Apple basically continues to source its products made by Foxconn um, from China, from the mainland of China. They haven't come out. There's no group of Silicon Valley execs who've taken full-page ads out in the Wall Street Journal saying, let's cool it on this, this trade war. But because they know that this advance of Chinese tech. And beneath that, science. It's not just tech. That's the thing. Chinese aren't just taking today's tech and making it better. They are developing new scientific frontiers, next generation tech. When I said, you know, you know a lot about this because, you know, you know about the deregulation of telecommunications, the 1996 act pushed by Clinton. And in a, in a sense, you can make the argument that U.S. telecommunications firms, but also Silicon Valley firms don't invest enough in the next generation of tech. You know, th- There's less government funding than there used to be, and these firms just don't. You, you deregulate tri- telecommunications, you've seen what, what has happened. I mean, these companies simply are not making the big advances. They're not pioneering the next generation of internet of all things and so on. That's coming from outside. And so as a consequence of that, there is actually a great damage that will come to the U.S. economy because so much of GDP in the United States comes from the tech sector. And because it comes from the tech sector, what that GDP is premised upon is intellectual property rights. The moment the Chinese say, look, you know, we've developed a new kind, and they have. Baidu is a new kind of GPS. We don't need to pay you rent for your yesterday's technology, well, your your share of uh, tech in GDP is going to decline, which means there will be a decline. And I think this is a serious issue. That's why it's bipartisan. That's why it's not about Trump. It's wrong to say Trump is, it's the whole of the American elite that's united behind this. If Biden comes into office, he's going to continue this. It may be, as is often the case, that Republicans have much worse manners on the global stage, you know, pushing people aside to get in the front for the photograph. Democrats might smile a little more and so on. But on the basic policy orientation toward China, I don't see that there'll be a huge difference. Whoever is in the White House, they have to deal with this on behalf of Silicon Valley, because Silicon Valley, I think, has been fatally damaged in this period.
0: And then finally, uh, it's not just Trump, of course. There are many Trumps around the world. There's, you know, Modi there's uh, Orban, there's Bolsonaro, um, Netanyahu. What do you attribute this, uh, this phenomenon
1: to? Some time back, I edited a book called Strong Men, which had essays written by artists about all these people. And I liked asking artists to write about them because there is something that social scientists just can't get about the appeal of of these characters. You know, there is a certain performance that they do. It's theatrical. I mean, Eve Ensler, V, wrote a terrific essay on Trump. Uh, She compared him at this time before the coronavirus to an orange virus. It's a really funny essay. But in the introduction, I go over this and I talk about how, you know, you have to understand the rise of these strongmen through what I feel is the complete exhaustion of the liberal project, whether you call it neoliberalism or whatever it is, it's the liberal project that is exhausted. Uh, it has no agenda for people. And you see it once again in the Biden camp. You know, Why didn't Biden come out there with a robust defense of you know, universal health care? Uh, why didn't Biden come there and say, you know what we're going to do? Minimum wage, $15. You know, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a aggressive financing of public health so that, you know, everybody gets tested. You know, why not come out with a robust agenda? Just try it out. You know, at least what we saw with Bernie was he came with a big agenda and that did inspire people. Um, You know, Biden played tried again. He was appealing to what Rahm Emanuel who listens to Rahm Emanuel? Rahm Emanuel has something called the Lincoln Project, and he comes up with this harebrained scheme. Let's go after the Biden Republicans. You know, so that's why at the Democratic Convention, they basically packed the thing with Republicans, you know, who are against Trump. Well, they tried that in 16 and it worked very well, but they tried it again. <laughs> exactly. And this idea of never again, never Trump Republicans. There's not many of them, you know, never Trump Republicans are your old Rockefeller Republicans who have been dinosaurs for decades. So why are you taking instructions from them just because they write columns in the FT or the Washington Post or, you know, they come out there and they bemoan the loss of their elite America, you know, when they had the control of the country and so on. That's eroded decades ago. Go back to Richard Nixon and people like that. They had utter disdain for these Republicans. They don't have a mass base. I mean, Biden Republicans are people who summer with you at Martha's Vineyard and come over to Obama's house and they have canopies, you know, in the beautiful sunshine together. That's about, you know, what, like 500 votes? That's not an election, man. There's no the Biden Republican is 500 to a thousand people. Good luck winning a election or whatever this is uh, with those thousand extra votes. You know, if they'd packed the convention with barnstorming speeches about how they were going to take this country in deep decline, invest in infrastructure, get somebody out there who could talk about what it's going to mean to build bridges. You know, what are the kind of jobs you're going to have and why you need a bridge or why you need trains and talk like that, man. Imagine a country that people want to live in. This idea that you're running against Trump's personality, as you said, didn't work in 2016. It didn't. It's Barely worked now. I mean, whoever wins this election, Trump has changed the context. And I think that's what people have to deal with. You know, whether it's President Biden, President Trump, President whoever comes next, Kamala Harris, for a couple of generations, I'm sorry to say, Trump has set the agenda. If in Britain, when Stuart Hall was writing, the phrase was Thatcherism. You know, Thatcher sets the agenda for a generation, maybe two generations. Well, we are in a position of Trumpism, where Trump has set the agenda for one generation, maybe another. I know you have a young son, uh, Doug, and, you know, they are going to be talking about Trump maybe for a good part of their lives.
0: Yeah, he may leave office, but he's not going away. Exactly. I was VJ Prashad, director of Tricontinental, a global think tank that, in its own words is an international movement-driven institution focused on stimulating intellectual debate that serves people's aspirations. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Next, a view on the election and its larger meaning from Jody Dean. Jody, a frequent guest in Behind the News, is the author most recently of Comrade, an essay on political belonging published last year by Verso. She teaches political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Jody Dean. So general impressions from the election. Biden's going to win. We don't know for sure, but it seems to be leaning in that direction. But it was otherwise, it was not a good night for the Democrats, despite much advertised prognostications. Um, What's your reading of what happened?
2: The prognostications were really misleading. It's remarkable to look at the mainstream media for the last couple of weeks and see how enthusiastic they are for a Biden victory, the predictions of a blue wave, this sense that, oh, you know, Biden has multiple paths um, to victory. You know, I've got to say, Doug, my partner and I and both of us are political science professors, although we're theorists, not really em- empirical people. But we were looking at a lot of the details in this and the um, polls, particularly the trend lines. And. The trends were not going in Biden's favor. His support was weakening dramatically over the last week and a half. And this wasn't uh, reflected in the mainstream. Like you can look back and see things like Florida seniors going for Biden when that was crazy. That was not going to happen. And it didn't happen. And so one of the remarkable things is how the mainstream media really convinces itself of what it wants to hear. You know, if you look a little closer at its own data, that's not what it's saying. So I wouldn't go as far as say I think it's going in Biden's favor. I may be wrong. um, But I think I think that there's so much that's going to be dependent on the various court rulings and cases that come forward in the next um, week or so that it's really a toss up. So I, I mean, I think we can say for sure that the American political system has lost and the two main parties have lost and and the Democrats, for sure, like the Democrats couldn't beat someone who killed 230,000 people. I mean, that doesn't say much about them at all. <laughs>
0: no, it certainly doesn't. Well, of course, the, uh, the mainstream media were relying on polls, which have proven to be, looks like even more wrong this time than they were last time. Should we just junk those things?
2: I think maybe we should um, dump the pollsters, but keep the polls in a way like let's get rid of these celebrity pollsters whose words are people hang on as if they were some kind of of mystics or gods and recognize that the polls are one tiny bit of indicators that could well be wrong. And these were... um, were wrong. What was also what was so funny though this time around, Doug, I think is the way the polls were trying to say, Oh, we've included our own errors from last time to make sure we've addressed them so you would see the the parallels. If we were as wrong as last time, this is what would happen. But even if they were as wrong as last time, they told us, Oh, don't worry, um, Biden is gonna win. But that's not what it looks like.
0: So Trump did very well, despite having killed almost a quarter of a million people. His party did quite well despite being co-conspirators in the killing of a quarter of a million people. How do you read the appeal of this crowd, which on the surface of it seems so repulsive to anyone who's not in the the top 10% of the income distribution?
2: Yeah, I think a few things. I think that, um, let me, you know, um, Doug, I've told you in the past that one of my um, kind of secret habits, though if I say it on the radio, I guess it's not a secret, but one of my secret habits is I sometimes listen to right-wing radio when (laughs) I drive. And um, what was going on last Friday is the right wing was saying the primary issue in the election is covid. And are you in favor of hiding in your basement or are you in favor of getting the economy going? And what's so interesting about that is that that is the Democrats message. The Democrats said we were going to make covid the primary issue in this campaign, because we think that we can't get the economy going while the virus is killing millions of people and while the virus is under control. That's not incorrect, though. No, it's not incorrect, but what the Democrats didn't do was provide a compelling case for saying how they were going to protect people economically while the shutdown was going on. And so while you have so many unemployed, lost health insurance, furloughed in some ways negatively impacted by the virus the democrats didn't say oh we're going to work on this package of social welfare benefits to maintain your wages they didn't say we're going to give you um, or we're going to promise medicare for all particularly because people have lost their health care they didn't do that so all they did was say we need to get the virus under control but they didn't provide any convincing vision of helping people economically while they were suffering from the virus. And I think that failure is really, really crucial here because it let the Trump economic message, which was, look, you rely on the market, the market's gotta be open. It let that get out. Oh, and and another thing, you know, um, you probably saw this in his last rallies. He was saying things about people's 401ks and like, oh, if Biden's elected, you're gonna lose your 401ks. In terms of income distribution, trump did best with people making between 100 and 200 thousand a year so those would be the people most likely to be worried about their shrinking 401ks if they're not the least well off i would guess that they're mostly petite bourgeoisie right or small business rather than sort of a disadvantaged um, working class it seem more like the income makes it seem more like Small business.
0: Yeah, and I think that confuses a lot of people because some of those petty bourgeois, right, like car dealers or whatever, you know, code culturally is working class. So that, I think, confuses people um, who think that they're actually worse off than they really are.
2: One of the interesting things with just the way that the exit polls go is that it doesn't have to ask for a class identity, right? It's just like, what's the income? And the income of people between one and 200 the people in that income bracket voted for Trump. He got 57% of the vote of people in that, and people above it went for Biden, and people below it went for Biden.
0: What do we say about the basis of these two parties? Um, just let's play vulgar Marxist for a moment. What is the material base of these two parties, the class fractions and such?
2: I think this is that's a really hard call right now. It seems to me that the Democrats are the party of high-tech, entertainment, higher education, but let's say a whole slew of services and the Republicans are the party of oil and gas, fossil fuel sector, various kinds of construction, the remnants of steel in, you know, the remnants of what we would call heavy industry. Now that's a guess, right? That's not super accurate. And here's one of the reasons I think that that's only just a guess is another, um, tidbit from the exit polls, white females, again, as like last time, white females went for um, Trump, like Trump got um, a heavy number of white females. And this time, he got 60% of non-college graduate white females. So these are white females, right, without a college degree. Um, And I don't know how many of them were um, mothers, unwed mothers tended to go for Biden. But with these non-college graduated white females they went for trump and i think the question is how come do they feel dependent on a strong man Do they feel like they were afraid of something that was going to take away their sorts of values and that's how they identified the democrats i think there's still an element of cultural politics that the republicans are able to play that the democrats haven't found an answer for
0: trump uh, in the, especially in the last weeks of the campaign started using the word housewives a lot which uh, caused a lot of uh, bourgeois feminists to uh, wag their fingers in disapproval. Maybe that's got something to do with that appeal.
2: Oh, that's a really—I didn't know that about the housewives, Doug. I think that's a really good point. It's got to be, right, that he was kind of reaching out um, to them, and it seems like they heard it. Not surprisingly um, to anyone, he got a strong majority of evangelical Christian households, and non-evangelical Christians by a strong majority went for Biden.
0: He also got a surprising, or so it appears, because exit polls are kind of difficult to do when uh, so many of the votes were done in advance or by mail, but uh, in any case, it does look like he got a surprisingly large uh, fraction of black men and particularly um, Latino men. What do you make of that? Is that the macho appeal?
2: That could be something. But what I find most exciting about that is the um, opening it is to saying, you know, goodbye identity politics, because guess what? Someone's race does not tell you what their political vote's going to be. People can have uh, the same race, can have all sorts of different political orientations. They have different class orientations. So let's stop assuming the way the Democrats always do that demographics is destiny. It's not.
0: Yeah, because, you know, remember the analysis, last time it was all racism and sexism, this time around, I guess, you know, some of the instant analyses on uh, liberal Twitter um, are are focusing on white supremacy, and again, macho, um, masculinity, masculinism, but those don't really take us all the way.
2: I don't think they take us all the way at all. I got to say, really, I would think if the white supremacy argument was correct in explaining his appeal it would not be the case that he would have expanded his percentage of black and brown men, right? I don't think black and brown men are going to go with someone that they think is a white supremacist. So I don't think that that explanation accounts for the change in people's vote. It just, it seems very, very weak to me. On the macho stuff, you know, I was talking with my son Kean about this and his basic thing is like, In times that are relatively insecure, a strong man wins. The bully wins. The strong man wins. Americans, they don't want a wuss. They don't want someone that they feel is, you know, a desiccated old man hiding in his basement.
0: They prefer a bloated guy on the golf course,
2: I guess. I I think they prefer someone who um, exudes confidence and someone who they feel like is going to defend them. I mean, the Democrats don't seem like fighters. They weren't fighters with the Amy Comey Barrett stuff. They play a a game of moralism, but they don't play a game of fighting. And politics is about the fight.
0: In other developments, 26 of 30 uh, candidates that DSA endorsed uh, won their elections. Something is going on in that wing of politics, or at least within mainstream politics. Uh, how How do you understand what's going on there?
2: No, oh, I think this is an exciting socialist wave, and it's just completely wonderful news. And that we should take the kind of of uh, chaos, and well, I think it's fair to say chaos and corruption and delegitimation of the national election and the electoral college as a wonderful opening to the furthering development of socialist movement in this country and the fact that so many people down ballot who are strong DSA and socialist and uh, you know movement people that they won, that's a sign of this. I think that this is actually, um, that we should be really optimistic right now. Nobody has faith in this national election, right? Both parties have been saying that everything that's going on is likely to be fraudulent, is unfair, is wrong. Trump accuses the Democrats of trying to keep voting, which makes no sense. And the Democrats are um, rightly pointing out that Trump is trying to steal votes from um, people in the cities, predominantly people in African-American neighborhoods and cities. There is no legitimacy around this process right now. And that's good, right? It's good. It shows that this process must change and that the ruling class is incapable of forming a real government that can address the problems of the country.
0: I'm speaking with the political scientist, Jody Dean. Biden is the, the latest iteration of this kind of corporate Democrat politics that uh, have dominated the party. So they started moving in that direction in the 80s. But with the nomination of Clinton in 92, it became really the predominant force in the party. That really does seem shot to hell now, doesn't it?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, um, it seemed like Biden was actually, now this goes a little bit against my digs around the desiccated old man in the basement, but it seems like Biden was doing the best when he was least visible, when he was just any other person to Trump, then he could get people to support him. But once it became clear, oh, this really is that kind of, neoliberal corporate democrat who in fact is one of the architects of the american prison industrial complex and mass incarceration not to mention debt and beholden to credit card companies in delaware gee do we really need that i mean once people like they i think they start to see what these corporate dems and corporate imperialist dems we shouldn't forget when they see see what they represent of course they don't think that this is the future that you know that they want I don't think it means that the Republicans are, but I think it means that the Democrats have not been capable of capturing anybody's imagination.
0: Now, even I felt that a neoliberal technocrat as president would be somewhat calming after um, all the insanities and dislocations of the Trump years, but that didn't seem to be a (laughs) very widely shared sentiment.
2: Yeah, on this one, I have to say um, it's not a sentiment I shared either. And it's not just because um, I tend to to have a lot of enthusiasm for chaos and ruckus. It's more because I think that that the Biden message was just another version of make America great again, except we're just going to give it a kind of technocratic sheen. But what it really means is keep the old order, which is a racist order and a sexist order and an intense. Class order, keep it in place, and for at least some people, the Trump outsider feel, despite the fact that he was president, was a pushback against that the elitism of the coastal Democrats.
0: Both campaigns seem to be looking backwards at their inspiration. For Biden, I guess the ideal golden age was 2013, <laughs> when we were well out of, the, out of the, the, the great financial crisis and the golden era of uh, Obama. And then for uh, Trump, it seems to be about 1955. But what was remarkable, given the usual optimism of American politics, that neither candidate had much of a vision of the future. They all seemed like relics. And we don't be ageist about it, but uh, you know they're um, <laughs> they, because you know I'm no youth myself. They were <laughs> but um, they seem relics in that historical sense. That they're not really looking to the future. You look back in Bill Clinton or in his first campaign. You know, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. And you know, it was just all about the bridge to the 21st century. All this optimistic, almost utopian stuff about the future. They don't really have that.
2: No, they don't. I mean, I, I'll throw them a little bit of a bone, which is. 2020 has been the end of the world. I mean the coronaviruses make any um, anything that looks optimistic seem crazily naive. though you may have something Doug, uh, back to you know exit poll details people who felt like they were doing financially better. Now than they were four years ago, and there are some um, overwhelmingly went for trump and people who said that they were doing you know somewhat worse to very worse went to biden so I mean there are people in some places who don 't see their lives or even the future of the country as um, necessarily bad, and I guess they received the Trump message that Biden's going to take you back to, you know, where you were thinking in the um, early days of the 2000 or early years around the 2008 crash, when things were economically really terrible.
0: What about the, you know, the Civil War scenarios people spin out? Um, We were going to have street battles between uh, the Proud Boys and the Socialist Rifle Association.
2: It could still happen. Glad you brought that up because something I was wondering, maybe you've seen reports, I haven't seen anything, which is why didn't we see any real reports of ruckus last night. I mean, typically there are reports about voter suppression in this small town or in this city or in this precinct. I mean, every election you get those kinds of reports. And this time there was less than normal. And I started wondering, was you know were the gods of Twitter and, and Facebook and social media blocking those kinds of stories from circulating? Did they tweak the algorithm so that in a way to try to prevent there from being chaos or being having the election stolen and so um, where events happened they didn't get um, get attention I mean I don't know I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorist about this I, I really don't know but it, I found it remarkable that we didn't see anything um, last night. I do think though that as the fight around the continuing to count the votes, the counting the mail ballots the um, the the last bit of of late arriving votes as those legal battles go on, I expect that we're going to start seeing more protest in the streets
0: even if Trump is uh, dislodged. He and his movement aren't going away. What kind of appeal will they have?
2: Probably... grieved masculinity, um, stolen election appeal, um, I think we can expect that the far right's gonna continue to increase their power. I mean, an election, if the country's on the edge of civil war or already in a civil war, an election doesn't solve it. An election can actually push it into um, a more open and violent civil war. It's fascinating that we're at this point in the country where the civil war motif is up and talked about and even a mainstream topic honestly, if if Biden wins, it's probably more likely that organized white supremacist ilk is going to intensify rather than quiet down,
0: and then all these Trump voters in that you know hundred to two hundred thousand dollars bracket, will they just uh, shrug their shoulders, cheer it on, um, just consider it the price of tax cuts. What about that? the petty bourgeois layer?
2: That's a really interesting question. I would expect that they would do the kinds of local and state level political things that because those elections are kind of year after year, right? There's always more elections in this country. And so that they can fight at those other layers. If we think um, if we think about how the far right um, has increased in power over the last 30 or 40 years, it hasn't always been at the national level. It's been through essentially the long march through the institutions.
0: Trump is not alone. I mean, he's part of a global movement of people like him, Bolsonaro, Netanyahu, Modi, Orban. You know, we can make a long list. Why? (laughs) Why is this, that political tendency so prominent now?
2: It has to be the case that it's prominent because it's of the incompatibility of global capitalism with democracy. And the promise of, say, the European Union and you know, the U.S. approach to globalization and the World Trade Organization and all of this, the promise of kind of global capital was all of the ships rise, right? The the sea lifts all the boats or whatever it is. And the reality is, of course, the opposite, right? The reality is intensified competition among workers, the decline of skilled and strongly paid working class jobs in favor of really crap jobs in services and an intensification of inequality. And when people start to realize like, oh, geez, whatever we do in our sort of national democracies does not matter, it's not making a massive difference in our lives, then they're going to go to places who are going to promise, well, we can identify an enemy for you and we can tell you something that will make a difference in your lives. And it's going to be get rid of these um, elitists, get rid of these liberals, get rid of these people who are push- pushing a global vision and instead, you know, take pride in, in who you are nationally or take pride in your traditions. And if you're men, take pride in your you know ability to inseminate women and make them have babies i'm thinking of the you know the terrible situation in poland um, around abortion
0: so a lot of people who are analyzing this say you know go, go to the bread and but this mistake was not going for the bread and butter issues uh not making a you know, real materialist appeal um the democrats won't do that because that their paymasters don't like it when they do that but you know you what some of what you're saying sounds like what we bracket as cultural issues but those seem to be really quite significant in the way people think of politics
2: I think there's significant. I, I guess I think that the economic and the cultural issues are deeply intertwined, and um, we can't separate them, right? The um, it's the reaction to lack of power and having power, and the reality of that when people lack of ability to secure their basic means of of life, to secure a sense of a future for themselves and their families, to, to um, feel like they can weather the next storm, then they're going to be angry and frustrated and look for hope wherever they can find it.
0: And finally, we couldn't have you on in a situation like this without uh, your um, giving us a bit of hope and evoking the communist horizon. Is it still out there?
2: Oh yes of course it's 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 even you know stronger and closer and brighter than ever before comrade and um the reason it's stronger and brighter than ever before is the overwhelming fact of the lack of legitimacy of our political system. It's before all of our eyes. I mean, everyday people are out on the streets complaining about um, the electoral college. I mean, this is a, and a you know, and our country's not known for a great deal of historical and political sophistication, but a lot of people are now really aware of the problems in the system. And I think that people see a system that is broken and that um, leads them to start to look elsewhere. So that would be the one side. I and mean, then the other side is for the whole last year, as grim as it's been, we've also seen really um, powerful people's struggles from the strike wave that accompanied um, the first weeks and months of the pandemic through the wave of protest against um, racist policing and the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Daniel Prude and others. I mean, people are going out and using um, means that are not within the electoral system because they see that the electoral system can't represent them. So I think that um, that the outlook is good. And I think that the progress made on the local front and the smaller elections by DSA members is also really great.
0: Yeah, I and mean, Gallup found that uh, one in 10 grown-up Americans uh, had participated in the Black Lives Matter demo over the summer. That's a remarkably large number.
2: It's remarkable. And it, gives, it, it, it should give us a sense of you know, people participating in politics and recognizing that politics is so much more than an election.
0: That was Jody Dean, a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Her three most recent books, The Communist Horizon, Crowds and Party, and Comrade, all published by Verso, form a trilogy about the great potential of radical politics today. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a 2004 cover of The Dills Class War, we heard the original earlier, this by Mission of Burma. Till next week, bye.